I have the uh, distinct displeasure today to talk about something that is very, very difficult for us, to, to, for me to talk about, and probably really, really hard for you to hear. Um, in the Bible, there is something called a holy war. Now, as soon as I say that, that probably brings up all kinds of thoughts and ideas about all kinds of different things that are really, really uh, awful and terrible. Uh, unfortunately, uh, no one religion in our world today is without contempt or without blame when it comes to the idea of holy war. And unfortunately, also, Christians in the West especially uh, have been blamed a lot for what's called a holy war through the Crusades. Um, the Crusades are some of the most difficult times in the Christian church because of all the atrocities being done. But far too often, uh, us Christians and also the scholars of the day uh, refuse to remember the contributions made by the Muslim communities, the religion of the Muslim communities, prior to the Crusades. Now, you're thinking to yourself, is he going to blame the Crusades on the Muslims? Is he going to blame Muslims for all of the holy war stuff that's going on here? Well, uh, granted... There are still some groups within the Christian church and some groups within the Muslim community that still think that they're fighting a holy war. But we're New Testament Christians who live in a New Testament time. And so we don't think of things that way. But in the time of King Saul and in the time of King David, they did think that way. And it's still being thought that way today in some contexts. Let's not forget that the reason why Christians went to the Crusades to begin with, was because for 700 years, the Muslim community had taken over, killed, and basically exterminated all the Christians that they could, starting in Israel, starting in Jerusalem, in Turkey, then they moved over to Egypt, all went all across North Africa, moved into Spain, and even into France. And from 600 to 1000 AD, the, uh, the Muslim nation uh, itself uh, went on a holy war to destroy all of the Christians that they could find. It's the reason why there is a mosque sitting on the property of the temple of, uh, in Jerusalem, where today we're not allowed to enter the, the temple courtyards because there's a mosque there. Christians are not allowed. And so Jews have now been praying up against the wall, which has been made available to them, uh, and say their prayers on the wailing wall, as it's called. Uh, but the uh, Pope Pius II sent the Crusaders in 1059 because of the atrocities that were happening in Jerusalem. And so many pilgrims who went there were being robbed and looted and, and sold into slavery that they sent these Crusaders. Now, guaranteed, war is war, and nobody should be advocating for war. But there was a response, or there was an action, and then there was a response. The communities felt that the holy sites in Israel still needed to be available. And by the way, you may not know this, but when the Christians finally uh, went back to Jerusalem and took back the city of Jerusalem, they continued to allow the Muslim community to worship Allah as they saw fit, which was not allowed prior to that date. Now, some of you are thinking, but I heard so much in college or university about this idea that the Christians are responsible for 
the holy war, the crusades, and the destruction of the poor, innocent Muslim community. And that is just not true. Several uh, scholars have written books, this being one of them, Bearing False Witness uh, by Rodney Stark, a respected scholar, uh, and he quotes at least 10 other scholars who would uh, happily refute that. But the reason why I begin my message today with this is because the Old Testament talks about holy wars. And in the time of Saul and King David, there was a nation called Amalek that attacked the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. They were leaving Egypt, going towards the Holy Land, moving towards Canaan. And they were trying to deal with the nations of people as they moved through. And the Amalekites feared the Israelites and wanted to kill them. And God said to the people of Israel, we're going to fight them now, but eventually one day they are going to be completely destroyed. I'm going to ask you to completely wipe them out. And uh, us in a New Testament setting, in our sensitivities, we have a real hard time with that. You'll see in just a moment. I'm going to stop and go through this, and you're going to be shocked. You are going to be appalled. You are going to feel like, I can't believe that this is the God that I say that I serve. But I want you to remember first that there's the bad news, and then there's the good news. The bad news is, is that God is wrathful. He is holy. He will punish those who oppose him. But the good news is the gospel. The good news is that Jesus came and said, but I have come to step in place of all the punishment that is necessary for every person on the earth. All they must do is turn and believe. An Old Testament situation where holy war was a real thing. And now we as New Testament people have to look back at that and look at it within the right context. What happens if I don't tell you the right context is that you might walk away from what I'm going to read to you in these first two passages and think, that's it, I'm done with Christianity because I don't want to have any part of that. And far too many people have done that. I was talking with someone earlier this week and last week about how context is so important. When I read the Bible, I read it from the back to the front. I don't actually read it back to front, but I read it from the back to the front because at the back is the hope for us in eternity through the book of Revelation. And the gospels teach us about Jesus and who he is. And we can know who Jesus is and look into the Old Testament and see what Jesus has done. The Bible's not shy about putting the absolute truth on the page. It's not shy about telling the stories of people who did seriously wrong things. And it's also not shy about telling us that some things are holy and some things are wrong and some things are beautiful and some things and some people are set apart. This idea of God's anointing is so important when we think about uh, who you are right now. But I'm going to go from the Old Testament and I want you to look into the Old Testament through the back of the Bible to the front, okay? And I'm going to tell you about this story and you're going to think to yourself, this is crazy. So let me read it to you and we'll see together how crazy this really is. This is from Samuel chapter 15. One day Samuel said to Saul, if it was the Lord who told me, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people. 
So Samuel's the prophet, Saul is now the king. Remember last time, God anointed Saul as king, and uh, here he was, head and shoulders above everybody else. He's tall, handsome, and yet he was hiding. He was God's anointed. They pour oil over him as a symbol that he was set apart for a special purpose. And I told you all that you have a special purpose. But now, Samuel says to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of the heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go, completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. You see how bad this is? So Saul mobilized his army at Telem. And there were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 from Judah. And then Saul and his army went down to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent his warning to the Kenites, move away from here where the Amalekites live or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Hilva all the way to Shur east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything. In fact, uh, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. And they destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Now, I prefaced all of my remarks to read this to you because it's important that you understand that as New Testament Christians, we do not advocate this kind of war. We do not stand on the side of the Old Testament in carrying out God's act of justice in a holy war kind of way. So anyone who tells you that by going to war is God's holy war, they are mistaken. I'm not a pacifist, but war is the last result. If Russia is the aggressor in Ukraine and the world finally comes to terms with having to deal with Russia, is it uh, a holy war? No, it's a response to an angry nation that has overstepped its bounds and taken advantage of those in Ukraine and someone has to set it right. Were the Christians on the Crusades in a holy war? Well, they called it one and they shouldn't have because they were responding to what the Muslim nation at the time had done. They had crossed over all of Northern Africa and uh, most of Europe in the Southern sections and were taking over and uh, removing all the Christians, executing them and killing them. And so the Europeans sent the Crusaders. Were horrible atrocities happening from both sides? Absolutely. And if we as a country or the United Nations as a country go to war against Russia because of what's going on there, will there be atrocities on this side? I hope not, but probably. War is never to be pursued. And only as a last resort. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great fathers of the church, said that we should never pursue war. But in some instances, there is a just reason to pursue war. If you lived through the Second World War, you understand the just cause against the Nazi regime. 
Now, I had to deal with all of this because it's part of the text and it's part of the problem with Saul. And Saul is asked by God to do a cleansing to deal with the Amalekites and to kill them off completely. And it was God's way of punishing a group of people for their act of disobedience. It was horrible and awful. And yet I don't want you to get distracted by that storyline because Saul also does something that I think is important for us to understand here in the text. Let me go on. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and he has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Here's Samuel. He went and found Saul. He went and anointed him king. It's no wonder that he was upset because God says, you know, Saul has now committed atrocities. Here's what he did. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. And someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. And then he went on to Gilgal. This is one more piece of the character puzzle about who Saul is. Saul was supposed to be obedient to God and carry out his will. Saul doesn't carry it out completely. And now he's building a monument to himself. The power that he has is beginning to corrupt from inside. Remember last time I said to you, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Uh, No, you didn't. And then what's all the bleeding of sheep and goats And the lowing of cattle that I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. And I think that Saul is admitting this because he got caught. Right? I did exactly what the Lord commanded. Yeah, but what's all the, you know, uh, the bleeding of sheep and goats out here? Oh, well, you know, I did did what uh, was best for God. I I took, took them... And listen to what he says next. Uh, But they're going to be a sacrifice to the Lord our God. We have destroyed everything else. He's trying to save his butt. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, you are not the leader of the tribes of Israel. The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners and the Amalekites until they are all dead. Why have you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, and the plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what's more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul is anointed by God, set apart for a purpose. 
And when God's command comes to him, even though we don't like it, and even though we think it's awful, Saul does not carry it out completely. And it's because of his disobedience that the anointing which was laid upon Saul is now going to be removed. Being set apart for a special purpose for God. And then Saul asked for forgiveness. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. For I was afraid the people did, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. All right, now let's talk about this from the looking through the back of the Bible to the front. Okay? We are never going to be asked by God to do what Samuel was asked to do because Jesus paid the price for our sin. Because Jesus made it possible to not be punished in the way that God punished the Amalekites. If Jesus had been there prior to this incident in the Old Testament, it would not have been necessary. All would have been necessary would have been be obedient to God, love him, follow his commands, give your life to him, and the punishment for your sin is paid. But in the Old Testament, God's wrath is real. Now, don't make the mistake that God's wrath isn't real today. There's still uh, consequences for not following Jesus. Saul is caught out in a lie. Saul is caught out in disobedience. Saul is so full of himself and so insecure that he is willing to do what other people tell him to do rather than what God is telling him to do. Now there is something that you and I can talk about today. How many times have we been in a situation where we know what God's command is and yet someone or a group of someone's, a friendship group, or my peers, or my colleagues at work, or my fellow students say something else, and I have to choose to be obedient. Or I go with a sort of half obedience, or even a three-quarter obedience, because I'm not willing and ready to be fully obedient to God. What God is asking from us when we are called to be set apart, he sends his spirit, he sends his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to transform and change us into the people that we're supposed to be. Jesus had this conversation with a people in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Janet, I'm going to change the order of this here. Jump over to Mark chapter 12 for me, please, Janus. The most important commandment in Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel. This comes from the Old Testament, by the way, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other command is greater than these. Now, this is probably something that you're fairly familiar with. If you're a churchgoer, you probably heard this many times. Love the Lord your God is commanding you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can we be like Saul and fully obey God? No, we can't be like Saul. We can't say, well, 
I sort of want to obey that. <laughs> well, I want to be parts of that. Or I, want to, I, want, I, don't, I won't do it when I'm around my friends, but I'll do it when I'm in private. I don't know what your thing is. I don't know what it is that, that causes you to say something like that. Maybe you don't actually say it in your mind, but you think it. Or you just react without thinking. The pressure's on. The people around you are asking you to do something that you know you shouldn't do. I don't know. What is it that you have trouble saying no to? What's the thing that keeps you from being fully obedient to God? And then the teacher of the religious law, verse 32, says this. Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. Get this. Watch this phrase. Listen to this. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required by the law. What did Samuel say to Solomon? Samuel says... Verse 22 in the text, what's more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? What do we do that's like burnt offerings and sacrifices? I mean, they used to go to the temple and bring these animals as a sacrifice to God, as a admission that they were sinful and they needed saving. What do we do in our church, right here in this church, maybe even you did it today, where obedience is better than what you did today. Where obedience is better than coming through the doors of church today. Where obedience is better than putting money in the bucket. Where obedience is better than putting on the face that you put on when you go to church and you saying everything is okay. What is the thing that God is asking you to be obedient in? I don't know what it is. Verse 34, realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I think that they remembered the conversation with God and Samuel and Saul. Saul sort of did right. The Pharisees sort of did right. Far too many of us, and I can say with absolute certainty that far too many times I have done sort of right. Can you say the same thing? That there, was, there was, wasn't full obedience to the teachings in the Bible? I don't have to go through them all. You probably, it, one is in your head right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And God is saying, this is what is best in your relationship with him. Get this right, this obedience stuff right, because all of this trapping of coming to church and putting money in the plate, all of that is a response to your obedience, not the reason for your attendance. I want to read to you what happened to King David. Chapter 16. going to jump ahead to chapter 16, verse 1. There we go. Now the Lord said to Samuel, Can I start at verse 
Sorry? I started at verse 6. Six. Pardon me. Yes, you're right. Sorry, verse 6. So uh, uh, God says to Samuel, now go. Uh, the Lord is going to remove the spirit from Saul, but there is a young man that needs to be anointed here. And it's in the house of Jesse. So he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. Here it comes, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, who was the oldest of the sons, by the way, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now we're getting to the other side of the Saul equation. Saul did so much stuff for the outward appearance. Saul did so many things because of peer pressure. Saul was more interested in how he looked rather than how he responded to God. And now Samuel's in the process of trying to choose someone else and God makes it clear here, don't look at the outward appearance. Actually, this young man was very good looking. (laughs) As a matter of fact, all of uh, Jesse's boys were good looking. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Then Jesse summoned Shimeah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. And in the same way, all of seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel asked, are, are, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once. And we will sit down and eat. And we will not sit down and eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome and had beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So David stood there among his brothers and Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. What's most important to God about serving him and being set apart and anointed for him? It's what's in here. Is your appearance what matters to God? All of these boys were good looking. Saul was good looking. He had the right features. He had the right height. The boys had the right sense of youth. They had the right sense of looks. Is that what matters in the world around us? Far too many of you have been put down, abused, or ignored because of the way that you look. God's not interested in that. He says, I want to anoint you as one set apart. And if I'm calling you to a task, if I'm calling you to a purpose in your life, then the Spirit of God is gonna come upon you like he did with David to carry out the work that God has called him to. Here's this 15, 16-year-old boy who's been anointed to become king of Israel. Did he have any training for that? None. He didn't go to military school. (laughs) I mean, he didn't go to theological college. What did he do? He was a shepherd. Now, that probably helped him because as a shepherd, he had to take care of the sheep. It's not unlike what sometimes pastors have to do in churches. Sometimes sheep are pretty stubborn. But he also protected them. But if God calls, he's going to equip you. Where is God calling you? So here it is. Saul wanted to be king. Good-looking guy. And the power got to him, 
and the pressure got to him and the corruption that began in him corrupted him to such a point where God withdrew his spirit and now David is anointed not because of his looks but because of what's gone on in his heart and God's spirit now comes upon David and leads him by the power of the spirit And in the New Testament, we are anointed by the Holy Spirit when Jesus comes into our heart. We live by the power of the Spirit of God, by what lives in our heart because of the Spirit of God. And the power of the Spirit of God is going to equip you for what God has called you to. Amen? God is going to equip you to what God has called you to. Amen? What is it that God has called you to? For some of us, it's family. For some of us, it's ministry. For some of us, it's our jobs, certainly. But maybe we're just trying to do it on our own strength. Maybe we're only wanting to be sort of obedient. Maybe, like Saul, we give in to the peer pressure too quickly. Maybe God is asking you to be obedient, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, we have two examples before us, Lord. And I imagine that uh, we can identify with both, feeling inadequate for a task, not knowing if you're there, You really want me to do this, God? Or maybe we identify with peer pressure is pretty strong. I don't know if I can obey all the way. Lord, would you help us to be more like David than Saul and to rely on the equipping of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.